Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's great to have you with us for our second Christmas service. And this is kind of the family one where we're all together. And so uh, you may not know this, but we plan these Christmas services months in advance. And we go all out for Christmas. I mean, we, go, we do crazy things at Christmas time. Like we, we decorate, we take lights from inside our house and we put them outside. We take trees from outside and we put them inside our house. I had like an entire plate of fudge before this service. I don't know what I was thinking, but I think it's what baby Jesus would have wanted. So I, I went for it. And uh, it's great to have you with us. And because um, you, maybe for some of you in this room, maybe a crazy thing that you did this Christmas was come to a service like this. And maybe this isn't like your normal thing to come to church. And so I wanna just be fair to you and just let you know where this is headed right off the bat. Uh, at the end of this talk, I'm gonna talk for the next several minutes and then I'm gonna ask you to make a decision. And we make all kinds of decisions at Christmas time that don't really matter, right? Like real tree or fake tree, right? Okay, I know that it matters to some of you way more than it should, but for most of us, that's not a decision that really matters. What I believe though, is that this decision I'm gonna ask you to make at the end of this time together is the most important decision that you will make in your entire life. I really believe that. In fact, I think it is the decision that will shape everything that happens for you for the rest of eternity. It's that big of a deal. And so what I wanna do tonight is I want to uh, dive into the Christmas story. If you're new to the Bible, the New Testament begins with four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The first of those is the gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew introduces us to Jesus and introduces us to the Christmas story by introducing us to Jesus as a king. Really, if you, if you open up Matthew chapter one, it, what it is, is it's a long list of names. It's called a genealogy. And it's all of Jesus' ancestors tracing through it because Matthew wanted us to know that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The word Messiah means king. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to show how Jesus was descended from King David, who was the greatest, most prolific king in the Old Testament. So Matthew, right off the bat, he wants us to know Jesus is a king. That's who Jesus is. Now, uh, when we hear that, when we hear this whole idea that, that Jesus is a king, uh, it, it, it sits differently with different ones of us. Um, here's why it's important that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is a king. It's because deep within every single human heart, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, inside of every single one of us, we have this longing for a better world. All of us do. We have this sense that the world is not the way it should be. We wanna live in a world where there's an end to human trafficking and racism and abuse and homelessness and hunger. We, we wanna live in a world where no one is marginalized and everyone is valued. And maybe you haven't used this kind of language ever to describe it, but, but essentially what we want is the kingdom of God. That's what we want. It is the kingdom that Jesus was born and that Jesus came to usher in and to bring about. This kingdom where God reconciles and redeems everything and the world is made right the way it was originally intended to be. We want that intrinsically inside of all of us. We want the kingdom of God, but we also want the right to choose what's right and wrong for ourselves. We don't want anyone forcing their opinions or their views on us. We want the authority to judge for ourselves. And so we do, we want the kingdom of God. What we don't want is a king. We want the kingdom of God, 
but just don't, don't give me a king. And is it any wonder, really? I mean, when you think about kings over the course of history and presidents and governments, kings have not always been good news, have they, for the, for the world, for the human race. Kings haven't always ushered in good things. And so we say, yeah, I'd love the kingdom of God, but I'm not sure how I feel about a king. And yet Matthew wants to introduce us to Jesus as a king who has a kingdom. If you look at the story that Matthew tells in the gospel of Jesus' birth, the king at the time when Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary was King Herod. King Herod is the king of the Jews at this time. And if there is a villain in the story of Jesus' birth, it's King Herod. He was a ruthless king. He was powerful. He was wealthy and he ruled with fear. He threatened and intimidated people. And if you got in his way, he had no problem destroying you if he thought you threatened his kingdom. In fact, first century historians wrote a lot about King Herod and some of his exploits. He was an actual historical figure. And so these are just a few of the highlights that first century historians have talked about. Uh, apparently he had the high priest who was his brother-in-law at the time drowned in the swimming pool of his palace. The guy didn't agree with him. And so he literally, his, his own brother-in-law, he had him drown in his palace. Um, he killed three of his sons, his own sons, for alleged conspiracies to overthrow him. He was constantly paranoid. He was obsessed thinking that someone was always out to get him and, and take over his kingdom. He also redrew his will six different times to cut various children and relatives out of his will to make sure that they didn't get power. But maybe his most awful thing that he did that historians record was his last act. On his deathbed, during his last illness, what he did is he ordered his army to gather together a crowd of leading Judean citizens in, and he imprisoned them in the Hippodrome in Jericho. And he, he told his army this, he gave them this order. He said, when the news of my death is announced, I want you to kill all of these leading citizens. And the reason he did this was because he wanted to be assured that there would be mourning at the moment of his death. That was King Herod. That was the kingdom that he brought in this vicious, ruthless, fear-driven king. King Herod, his story intersects the story of Jesus uh, at this moment where um, Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph in the city of Bethlehem. And if you look at Bethlehem on a map, essentially, if you go three miles away from Bethlehem, there's a large hill. And on the top of this hill was the Herodian. It was where Herod's palace was. So at the moment when Jesus was born, Herod could have literally looked out his palace window and he could have seen Bethlehem where Jesus was. And what happens is there are magi, wise men who come from the east and they, they're looking for Jesus. They've been following the star they saw when it rose and they, they intersect Herod and they say, we're looking for the king of kings. We wanna worship him. And Herod says, that's great. When you find him, why don't you come back and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship him too. But thankfully the wise men didn't fall for it because they were wise men. And so they end up, after they find Jesus leaving by a different route, this is the very next verse after that happens, Matthew 2, verse 16. It says, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So it's this vicious, horrible act that he does. At the moment of Jesus' birth, there was great joy and rejoicing, but there was also deep mourning and sadness. Why did he do that? Why did he 
feel that he needed to kill all the boys that could have possibly been Jesus. It's because Herod understood exactly what Matthew is trying to get us to understand. He understood that Jesus was a king. Jesus came to us as a king, but here's the thing. Jesus is sort of like the anti-king in the story. He's not a king in the way that any other king or any other person in authority or power has ever been. And here's what I believe tonight. I believe if you can see Jesus for who he really is, and you can see that he is different, that he was God in the flesh, and he is not like any of our earthly kings or our earthly leaders or rulers, it might just change the game for you. So that's what I wanna do in the next few minutes. I wanna help you understand who Jesus is and how he, he came as a king to do something different than anyone ever did before him. So if you think about most kings or most governments or most leaders that are fear-based, like King Herod, that were ruling with intimidation and power, the main question, the dominant question you have when you're living under the rule of a king like that is this question, what do I have to do, <laughs> right? What do I have to do? Because I, I gotta stay on his good side. How do I stay on his good side? What do I have to do to make sure I'm in good with this king? What do I have to avoid and make sure I don't do so that I don't get in trouble with this king? That's the question that fear asks. What do I have to do? What's interesting is if you think about every other major world religion and every other king or kingdom that you can think of, the way it basically operates is like a ladder, and so I've got a ladder here and I'm surprised they actually let me use this because I'm a pastor and I don't usually use ladders or any tools for that matter. But the way that, um, the way that all other major world religions work is basically it functions like a ladder. And here's what I mean by that. God is basically up here or the divine or the universe or however you wanna say it. And so God is up here, I am down here. And so what happens in every other major world religion is a prophet appears and that prophet explains the way to climb the ladder and the way to actually get to God. And it's all about what I have to do. And so I do this good deed. I, I'm involved in this thing. I try not to do this bad deed. And, and by my actions, I keep trying to do good things. And hopefully, I don't really know until the moment that I die, but hopefully when I die, I did enough good things and I avoided doing enough bad things that I got all the way to God at the top. That's, that's the hope anyway. And that's how every other kingdom, that's how every other major world religion works. That is not how Christianity works. Christianity is completely unique in this way. Christianity, the way it works is God is at the top of the ladder and there is nothing I can do. There's no act, there's no effort I can make that will actually get me up that ladder. God is too holy and my sin, my brokenness are too great. And the world that I live in is too broken. It's, it's that intrinsic thing inside of every one of us. We understand the, the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. We long for a better world. God is too far up. I'm too, I'm too sinful. And so the Christmas story and the way that Christianity basically works is God himself came down the ladder in the person of Jesus in order to be the way for us to connect with God. Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, I've got another ladder for you to climb. Here's my way of climbing the ladder. Jesus came down. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That's what the incarnation is, is that Jesus came down in the flesh and he himself became the way to connect with God. So we don't climb a ladder to get to God. 
Jesus himself is the way that we get to God. So simply a way to summarize that is just, Jesus did not say, I am the ladder. At no point anywhere in the gospels do you find Jesus saying, here's what you gotta do, here's how you climb the ladder. Jesus didn't say, I'm the ladder. What he said is, I am the door. That's the metaphor he used to describe himself and his relationship with us. He said, I am the door. Let me show you the passage of scripture where, where he says that. This is John 10 in, in verse nine. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now you have to understand what Jesus was speaking about here had a context. And the context that Jesus was speaking and saying these words in was uh, the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. So in the first century in the Palestine, in this area, there were shepherds who would have care of a flock of sheep. And so at nighttime was the time when sheep were the most vulnerable. And so what a shepherd would do is a shepherd would bring all the sheep into this pen uh, for them to be there at night. And then what the shepherd would do is the shepherd would literally lay down across the entrance of the pen. He would literally become the door for the sheep, the door for the pen. And so any thief that wanted to come in and steal sheep at night, any predator that would come across and would try to kill sheep had to get past the shepherd first. And the shepherd would lay down and put his life on the line to protect the sheep. And that's, what, what, how, that's, that's how the relationship worked. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I am the door. I am the door. If you allow me to be the door for you, I will take you in. I will give you safety. I will protect you. And any thief, any predator, any circumstance, even death itself that wants to lay hold of you has to get by me first. It's not your effort that's gonna keep you safe. Jesus is saying, I'm doing that. I'm the door. I'm the one laying myself down in order for that to happen. I am the door. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the metaphor that he's using. Now, I, I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life where this was, this was new to me. I remember when I first grasped this understanding and, and had someone explain this to me, this idea that Unlike Christianity, it's not other world religions. It's not like you climb a ladder to get to God, but, but Jesus himself is the door. He didn't say, I know the door. I can help you find the door. You climb this ladder and there's a door up there. He said, it's me. I am the door. I remember the first time I heard that, the question that entered my mind, I don't know if it's the same one going through your mind right now, but the question was, but how did Jesus become the door? <laughs> right? I mean, like what would qualify Jesus to say something like that? I mean, that's crazy. You can't just say something like that. I mean, if I were to say to you, I am the door of eternal hope, I am the door of salvation, you would think I was crazy. What possible qualifications did Jesus have to make a claim like that? And the answer is, Jesus could say that because he was a king. Exactly what Matthew is trying to get us to see and understand in the story of Jesus' birth. Jesus wasn't just a king like we think of on earth, Jesus was the king. He was God himself. And in the, in the New Testament, it talks about how, and in the Old Testament, both, it talks about how Jesus was how everything in the world was created. Jesus was God himself. He was the king. He had ultimate authority. 
But what Jesus chose to do with his authority was something different than any other king has ever done for us. Herod used his authority and his power to kill other people and take their lives from them so that his kingdom could remain intact. Jesus laid down his life in a sacrificial death on our behalf so that we could have life, so that he could become the door for us to have life and to have salvation and have it life abundantly through him. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for for me. And that's how he became the door. And so uh, go ahead to that picture. This is a cross. And and you don't even have to be a Christian to know the cross has become the symbol for Christianity for over all these centuries. Have you ever wondered why? It's, It's a Roman torture device. Jesus died on it. He was put to death. He was executed. It's, it's a, you would think it would be a symbol of defeat. You would think it would be a, a symbol of loss. So why has it become the symbol for Christianity? It doesn't make sense in a ladder climbing world. And the reason it's become the symbol is because in Jesus' resurrection, what happened is the cross was transformed. It's not a symbol of death. It's not a celebration that death exists and even God had to die. The cross is a celebration that even death itself has been overcome. And therefore there is nothing left to fear. There's perfect love came down the ladder in the person of Jesus and drove out fear on the cross. The kingdom of fear is bankrupt because Jesus is the door for us. Let me illustrate it this way. One of the most vivid Christmas memories that I have was when I was a little kid and it was the year that my grandpa died. Uh, We loved my grandpa and in the month of December, he died unexpectedly of a massive heart attack. My dad's dad. And when that happened, it threw my family into this whirlwind of grieving and loss And my parents suddenly were having to plan a funeral and were having to deal with like an estate and all the different things you have to deal with when someone dies unexpectedly. And what I I remember about that year is because this happened right in the month of December, uh, nothing got decorated in our house. We did not have a Christmas tree that year. And the truth of the matter was my parents had not bought presents. They hadn't wrapped presents. None of that had gotten done. December just felt like this month of this whirlwind of grief and loss as, as we tried to figure out what to do with my, my grandpa's death. And so his funeral was actually on Christmas Eve that year. And so for me and my brother and my sister, we didn't know what Christmas was gonna look like that year. So I have this memory of coming back home from the funeral on Christmas Eve. And it's, it's late in the evening, we're coming home and I remember the car is just dead quiet. Nobody's talking, just completely silent. And the truth is my mom is sitting in the front seat and she is just wrecked inside because she knows she doesn't have anything for me and my brother and my sister. There's no Christmas plan for that for us. So I remember pulling in the driveway. We all get out quietly out of the car. We walk up to the front door and I can can remember my parents putting the key in the door, opening the door, walking in our house and turning on the lights. And there is a tree set up, decorated, And there are presents everywhere, just all like overflowing out from underneath this tree. And the whole house is decorated. 
And I mean, I remember just standing there. We were all just blown away, just standing in shock at what we were looking at. Now, when you're a little kid, you have an explanation for this, correct? Well, what did I think happened? Santa, right? Santa, Santa came every year and gave us presents. He must've just come a little bit early. And that was, that was immediately where my mind went. That's what I thought. And my parents let me believe that for that period of time. It wasn't until several years later, they told me what really happened that night. Here's what really happened. We had a, an incredible friend of our family. His name was Larry. And Larry and his wife knew where the spare key was to our house. And so while we were at the funeral, Larry and his wife let themselves in to our house, let themselves into our worst pain, our worst nightmare. And at their own expense, they decorated this tree and brought it in and, and they bought these presents and they did this in this beautiful act of love for us. That, my friends, is a picture of the gospel. Jesus came down the ladder and he led himself in to the middle of our worst nightmare, this broken world. And he was the only one that could do it because he was the only one who had the key and had the authority. And at his own expense, he laid down his life to become the door of salvation for us, to become the door of eternal hope for you and for me. So here's what I want you to hear tonight. Jesus wants to be the door for you. He wants to be the door for you. You've battled the addiction and you fought it year after year and here it is, it's Christmas one more time and you're back at square one, back in the same place, nothing's really changed. Jesus wants to be the door for you. Maybe you've lost someone and this time of year, Christmas time, just turns up the volume on that loss and you feel that person's loss more than you feel at any other time of year. Jesus wants to be the door of eternal hope for you. Maybe you've grown up going to church. This is an old church door. Maybe you grew up walking through the doors of a church and that was familiar to you, but times have changed. You've messed up. You've made choices. You've walked away. Maybe even to walk in the doors of a church, even tonight was a, was a huge risk for you. Maybe you've wondered whether you'd even be welcome. Listen to me. Jesus wants to be the door of eternal hope for you. He is not done with you yet. Maybe you've walked through other doors hoping for something of meaning, maybe a, a relationship, maybe a job or a career. Maybe some people have let you down again and again and again. You've realized that all these other doors you've walked through haven't led to anywhere. Jesus wants to be the door of eternal hope for you. That's what we celebrate. And so it's decision time. He wants to be the door for you. What are you waiting for? What's, what's stopping you? There's no ladder to climb. There's nothing for you to do. The, the, the truth of the gospel that's different and unique from every other world religion, from every other kingdom, 
is that Jesus has done it on your behalf. And, and he offers himself as the door that we walk through to be reconnected with God and to have life and life abundant in him. So I wanna give you a chance to do exactly that. So do me a favor, would you bow your heads? Everybody in the room, would you just bow your heads with me right now? If that's you, if you know tonight, I am talking to you. I wanna invite you to pray a prayer with me to just come to Jesus. That's what we're gonna do right now. We're just gonna allow him to be the door of salvation for us right now. Maybe you've done this at some point in your life. Maybe this is all brand new to you. You've never heard this before. But I wanna give you the chance right now to just come to Jesus and you can just pray with me. You can pray in your own words, but we're just gonna go to him right now. So. Pray with me, Lord Jesus, we, I enter tonight through you as the door of salvation and the door of eternal hope. I confess you as Lord and King of my life. And I ask you to give me life and life abundantly in you. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, if you prayed that prayer, if you were sincere in that, what we believe through the faith that we put in God's word that you just got saved. That's what happened. That's the language we use, that you just entered through the door of Jesus and that you just got saved. And so I'm gonna ask you to do something. If you prayed that prayer, if you did that, I'm gonna ask you to do something symbolic tonight. And I realize this is gonna be a little bit out of your comfort zone. This is gonna be a little bit of a bold move. But I wanna invite you, in a moment, the band's gonna play a song and we're gonna, we're gonna stand and sing. And when that happens, I wanna invite you to come right through this way and I wanna invite you to enter through this door and walk right through this door. And we have aisles right here that are open and then we've got this large pathway right here. And when you come through that door, uh, Sean, our youth pastor, and a couple other people are gonna be here. We actually have something we wanna give you. And it's meant to be just a reminder of this night, a reminder of this decision you're making to allow Jesus to be the door of salvation for you. And here, here's why I'm asking you to do this, because I realize like this is kind of a big ask. The, the reason I, I want you to do this is because I know as soon as this service is over, you're gonna walk out those doors and life is gonna hit. And you're gonna wonder if this decision and what you did tonight was just some weird thing you did on a night in December, or if it really mattered at all. And so something happens when we symbolically get out of our seats, get out of our comfort zone and do something public. It's like a stake in the ground to say, tonight I made this decision. Tonight I'm making this. I want you to do that as a way of just saying before God and before everyone, I'm choosing to walk through the door of Jesus and to trust him with my life. And it's a new life on the other side of this door. And, that's, and what we wanna give you is just meant to be a reminder of that and what that moment is. And so here's what, here's what I'd love for you to do. Would you stand uh, up with me in this room? Everyone just kind of stand across the place. And we had many people do this in the packed service at 615. I want to invite you to, to make a bold move and to take this step. And so as we sing, as the band sings, uh, I want to invite you to come this way and walk right through and walk through the door. And when you do that, what we're going to do is we're going to clap and we're going to cheer and we're going to celebrate because that's what we do. We are the church and we celebrate. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus is about. And that's what we celebrate as a church. So if you're ready, we're going to sing and you come. <laughs> 